Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chasing Justice. I'm your host, Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. And today, uh, as I promised a couple of episodes ago, I was going to look at the Uvalde school shooting, uh, the killing, the horrible killing that took place at Robb Elementary School at the end of the 2021, uh, I'm sorry, 2022 school year in May, has really changed the way, uh, hopefully, this time, uh, how lots of places look at safety and security. Now, safety and security is not just about your schools. I recently had the honor to speak at an as-is program. ASIS is a it's a security uh, group. They're across the nation. Uh, they asked me to be the guest speaker on surviving active shooters in the workplace, our religious facilities, and our schools. And I used some information from Uvalde as a way to help people understand what we need to know about safety and security. But today, I wanted to specifically talk about the incident in Uvalde and under, under what we're calling uh, lessons learned from the violence, the police response, and the killer. Now, the reality is, while I'm going to use the Uvalde school attack as the backdrop of the conversation, I, I don't want to spend this time critiquing the police response, which I think anybody in law enforcement will tell you was less than appropriate. Uh, we know that uh, families are not happy with it. Uh, the school response, there were some things that went on at the school that were not appropriate. Uh, but in the, in the end, we, we lost quite a few innocent children and teachers to another killer who had lots of problems. So I want to go through some of this today, like I said I would, to make sure that we we have an understanding of looking at our all of our places where we gather. Uh, if you are a manager of a store, a food store, a restaurant, or you're a manager of a movie theater, a warehouse, if you work in any of those places, if you're a teacher in a school or an administrator in a school, there are lots of things that we can do to make our places safer and more secure. And one of the ways we do that is by understanding what has happened in other places. Uh, what has happened in previous attacks? How do we... Uh, prepare ourselves as we go forward. So that's really what I want to talk to a little bit today, and then we'll, we'll see how far we go. So that's the whole idea. Um, for most of you who know my background, uh, you know I, I spent 27 years in law enforcement. Um, I, I loved every minute of my law enforcement career. Uh, it was fun. It was exciting. Uh, I learned a lot. I was challenged. Uh, it showed me a lot about human nature and people. I got to interact uh, mostly when people were having a hard time, a difficult time. That's the reality. I mean, law enforcement doesn't come to your house when you're having a birthday party. They come when you've had a birthday party and somebody has shot somebody at that party or uh, domestic violence erupted at that birthday party or whatever. So it's important to kind of understand that after I spent 27 years in law enforcement, uh, I've been teaching and training since 2005. I'm a certified uh, law enforcement trainer. Uh, I went and I became the director of school safety and security at a large district uh, in the state of New Jersey. 
and I got to understand what really goes on in the schools that our children attend to, um, you know, what the culture of the school is. So a lot of my compatriots in law enforcement will leave law enforcement and then try and find uh, work in security industry uh, at the schools. And what they don't understand is that you can't cop the schools. You can't go there and, and treat everybody in the school uh, like you would treat people when you're uh, acting in law enforcement. There's two different missions uh, of things. While they need discipline and they need security in schools, it's different than answering a, uh, a radio call as a law enforcement officer and going to a robbery or going to something else. So you got to understand the culture that takes place uh, in the schools and, and how the staff are different. Now, let me say right at the beginning, there's a lot of discussion about um, school boards and how school boards are not responsive to parents and this and that. And I guess that's true in some places, but it's not everywhere. Uh, and it's our teachers. Our teachers are amazing individuals that dedicate their lives to educating our children. Can we have a conversation about what we want our children taught? Do we go by community standards and all that? I think we can. I think that's a reasonable thing for us to do. Uh, but obviously it's controversial. What I have seen, uh, doing assessments on schools, going in threat assessments on schools, doing uh, training for, for school staff, these teachers are, are excellent and they love these kids. They want to do right by them. Uh, and for the most part, when it gets controversial, it's because the teachers are trying to do what, they're with the kids every single day, all day long. And they see what goes on between the kids. They see how kids are treated by other kids based on all kinds of different things. And I think we, we, there is a political influence. There's no doubt about it. There's a political influence on some things. But when it comes down to the individual classroom, I think that's just the teachers who really love these kids and they want to help them get through their lives in the best possible way. And like I said, all these, all these arguments we can have about what a school board says or what, a, you know, what policy is in place that you don't like, you should be able to go to your school board and voice your opinion. It should be community-based standards as to what we teach our kids and what we do. So that, that aside, I wanted to say that my experience with school teachers and administrators for the most part has been very positive because they really do love these kids and they do want to uh, help them as best as they can. How we do that, that's, the, that's a conversation for, for a different day. But when I was the school security director, when I retired from law enforcement, I went and I became the school security director, I instituted a lot of um, safety things in concern to make sure that an active shooter don't uh, victimize my school. I mean, that became my total responsibility. And I, I was uh, determined to do everything I could to make the school as safe as possible. So it's interesting because right before I got there, I guess a year before I got to the district, the district had a professional company come in and do a threat assessment on the buildings. And I had the report, and I think it was about 15 pages. Oh, a big 15 pages. And basically it said, get more cameras and do this, that, and the other thing. But it, it did not go granular into um, the, the things that I look at, right? Uh, I'm in the middle of some threat assessments right now. I'm coming to you live from the road. Uh, I'm out uh, on a trip where I'm doing a threat assessment for three different school districts. And uh, I look at things my, very granularly. My reports are very, very in-depth. Uh, I look at everything. I interview people. I go round and round because I'm trying to help people be safe and secure. So I've been doing that for a long time now. 
it's something that's become second nature to me. I, I, wherever I go, I look for safety and security gaps, gaps in the physical security. Uh, and then you know, sometimes I offer free advice when I see something, say, hey, you know, maybe you really want to take a look at this or that or the other thing. Um, and sometimes I don't because sometimes people don't want to hear from you. But that's where I come from. All right, so the whole idea of this, the purpose of this program is really to identify what we can learn from the attack at the Robb Elementary School so we can prevent future attacks. You know, I mean, we, we saw Columbine and we did learn some things from that. The police response changed from Columbine. Uh, we also saw that uh, as attacks went on, it was the Sandy Hook School and we saw differences in that attack. And, and there's been multiple other school attacks. What's interesting for us to all understand is that um, uh, prior to 2021, there were between 10 and 20, 25 real legitimate active shooter attacks at schools. Most of these are by students in the school. That's the internal threat. So the internal threat are people we let into our buildings. These are students, staff, parents, visitors, delivery people, uh, all these kind of people that we let in. We buzz the door and let these people in. Most of the shooters are students that attend the school. The outside attack, the external threat, are people who come to our buildings who are not permitted to come in and they fight their way in. They break the glass, like in Sandy Hook. They shoot out the glass, they step in, and they start doing the horrible things that they do. Uh, the Parkland attacker uh, used to be, previously had been a student there, was no longer a student there, and came back to the campus. We see the Uvalde shooter was uh, no longer a student in that school district, but he came back to attack that district. So there's lots of things that we can see on the human side of these things, of safety and security, whether it's a business, a school, a church, or whatever. Uh, we got to understand what goes on uh, with these people and, and why do they think the things they do as far as the attack so that we can use that information to prevent them from hurting us. And so when I talk about uh, this program and Uvalde, what happened, it's kind of really just a backdrop so that we understand the processes and the things that can be done for safety. If you want to understand more in-depthly, uh, more deeply what happened at Uvalde, if you go online and you Google the Texas House of Representatives interim report on the events at the Robb Elementary School, right? so that's the Texas House of Representatives report, on the attack at the Uvalde uh, School, Ele Rob Elementary School, you will see the actual official report from the state of Texas. It is the interim report because the final report isn't in yet, but it does give you a ton of great information. Like they break it down, a timeline of exactly what happened and when, what the police did. They talk all about the attacker so you can understand pre-attack uh, events, you can understand pre-attack mode and things like that. All right, so while we're gonna, uh, we're gonna discuss the events of the Uvalde school attack so we can see the lessons learned, this is not really a complete critique of school personnel or the law enforcement people involved. That's really not what I'm trying to do here. So let's be clear about that. All right, so May 24th of 2022 in Uvalde, Texas. The Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas is similar to thousands of other schools in America. What makes it different now is that it has joined a very large and growing list of schools that have been attacked by an active shooter or an active killer. Now, when you look at the FBI report on active shooters, and when I say active shooters, I'm talking 
legitimate, not not gangbangers fighting in the neighborhood and they run across the school and shoot it out in the in the uh, on the playground. That's not an active shooter. An active shooter is someone who comes to the location, your business, your church, your school, uh, anywhere that people gather, specifically to attack the people there for whatever reason. That's an active shooter. Uh, situation. The others are just uh, periphery, uh, and there's there's hundreds and hundreds and more of them. In the year 2021, was the record number of active shooter events across the United States. There were 61, uh, and you can get that information from the FBI report uh, that comes out and talks about active shooters in the year 2021. What we know about 2022 is that so far 2022 is on par to uh, be even worse. Than 2021, and that says something. Uh, so we really see, like in 2018, 2017, the number jumped from 30, started going up, and in 2021, it was 61 real active shooter events uh, all across our country. So Rob Elementary School attack in Uvalde is just the backdrop to pull lessons learned for any location, because we all have entryways, doors, windows, personnel, policy, procedure. Uh, and we interact with law enforcement and other first responders uh, for safety and security. So that's why I kind of use that as a backdrop. So the question that we have to ask is, will the attack on Uvalde be the last school attacked? Well, if you look at those statistics that I just told you, the trends in school shootings, we see that 2021 had the highest and 2022 is on par to be worse than that. So no, the answer is unfortunately no. It will not be the last one. by any stretch of the imagination. What can we do? Well, what we can do to prevent for the next attack. The question is on the minds of school administrators, parents, law enforcement, everywhere in America. Uh, you know, in the middle of, of what I'm doing now, I'm getting questions all the time. Hasn't, hasn't every school really learned to tighten down? Isn't every business all set? Well, what we find is that our schools are really trying because our kids are there. Uh, but when it comes to those 61 active shooter events, fully um, only one-third of them are in our schools. But we think about them the most because that's where our kids are, that's where little people are, that's where our little children are. So we think about that the most. Fully two-thirds of active shooter incidents take place outside of our schools. That means in your church, your business, your shopping mall, your movie theater. So we all have a stake in understanding this and and looking to close these gaps. Uh, And that's that's really what I really am trying to push for here. All right, so to prevent a future incident, we want to look at Rob Elementary and the attack there with a goal to understand what, if any, signs were available for us to see before the killer attacked us. And the reality is, yes, in many of these active shooter events, you can see signs that the shooter has intent to do things. They say things, do things, draw things, post things on social media. So we have to have a, a, an active... Uh, security division or person that is looking for these things. We have to make sure that our staff in our business or our school or our church, when they see something that they think is strange or maybe could could be a, a violence indicator, that they tell somebody who's properly trained to evaluate that and evaluate the threat and then take the proper action, right? So we want to understand the police response in Uvalde because you want to understand how are your cops in your town or your community going to respond when you call for help, right? Or you say you have a problem, uh, whether it's right or wrong, right? We have to see how it's going to go. We got to understand the value of equipment, doing the proper kinds of drills, 
physical and mental preparation for violence? Are you physically prepared, mentally prepared to respond to a violent incident? Or are you going to freeze up? You know, we talk about fight, flight, or freeze. Well, that is, that is really what happens to people. If you are mentally and physically prepared, if you think about these things in advance, you can respond better. If you've never thought of it, and this is what I say all the time, you don't want the first time you have to respond to, be, to something to be the first time you actually thought of it because you then may freeze uh, more than you'll fight or flight. And we want to take all this information that we look at and we want to apply it to our schools, businesses, churches, and everything else so that we can learn what to do. All right, so going back to Uvalde, let's look at the timeline of events. And again, all this comes out of the Texas House of Representatives interim report. From 11.33 a.m. to 12.50 p.m., when the killer uh, was finally eliminated by uh, Border Patrol agents. All right, on May 24th, a lone gunman made an announcement on social media that he shot his grandmother at home and he was going to shoot up an elementary school. This is what the kid said on social media to other people. He then stole his grandmother's pickup truck and he crashed that truck a short distance away from the Robb Elementary School. Now the reason that he crashed it is he probably didn't know how to drive. According to his family, he, he didn't have a license and he wasn't an experienced driver. And he crashed the truck uh, after he left his grandmother's house. He shot his grandmother. Uh, they were arguing over his cell phone. Uh, he was living with his grandmother because apparently his, uh, his mom had some problems of her own and the family was in a difficult situation. Uh, and the killer was moved to, um, to his grandmother's house. So this information comes from page 39 and 40 of the Texas Report. So if you get it, you can follow along uh, with what we're doing here. So he crashes the truck not too far from the Robb Elementary School. There were two good Samaritan people who tried to help him. They were at a uh, funeral parlor, right, uh, down the street from the school. They saw the accident, and they're going to come on and try and help the guy. They see a truck accident. They're going to come and help him. Well, he ends up shooting at them, right? He gets his rifle, and he starts firing at them. 911 was called about the crash, and the shots fired at 11.28 in the morning. All right, so this is where a lot of the stuff we heard from the news was confused because in most instances, uh, the initial reports we get in anything like this are usually proven to be wrong because you have hearsay, you have people, uh, they think they saw something, they heard something, somebody told them something. But here we have the records. 11.20 a.m., he crashes the truck. These two Samaritans come out to help him. He shoots at them and they call 911 to say, hey, this guy just crashed, he shot at us, and he took off. So based on that call about the car, the truck crash, and the shots fired, lots and lots of cops were responding to the scene. They were on their way over there to that area. All right. When they got there, the police got there, they were told, hey, the shooter jumped out of the truck with a bag uh, and his gun, and he went towards the Robb Elementary School. Right? So you got to understand, again, uh, here in the Northeast, we are uh, blessed with lots and lots of law enforcement. New Jersey has 500 and something municipalities and each one has its own police department. You have federal agencies, county police, local police, sheriff's departments, corrections departments. You tripping over law enforcement in the Northeast, right? In most of our Northeast big cities uh, in California, there's lots and lots of law enforcement. In this part of Texas, you had um, the local Uvalde Township Police. You had other surrounding municipal police departments. 
And then the Uvalde School District actually had its own police department. I believe it was formed in 2018. Uh, they decided uh, they wanted their own police. And it's, it, this happens a lot. Um, they're police agencies that, that are school police agencies, they're certified police agencies, but they work for a school or a university. Uh, you know, um, that's not uncommon. Uh, it might be uncommon in your area of the world, but it's not uncommon everywhere. Um, these police agencies are formed all the time. Monmouth University, a fantastic university in New Jersey, has their own police department. Uh, they have a chief, they have sergeants, they have uh, detectives, patrol officers, and they go out and, and patrol the campuses of the university. Cherry Hill School District in New Jersey is a K-12. through They have their own police department because they're very, very large, so they have their own PD, so it's not unusual. Uvalde decided they wanted their own police department, and they created the Uvalde School District Police Department, I believe, in 2018. So they had a chief, a lieutenant who was their detective, and then several patrol officers, and we'll see how that plays into the picture as we move along. And so the kid did use social media. Social media is how lots of people talk now, how they get back and forth to each other, how they say things, do things. And we can learn a lot about people based on social media. So there's pictures in the report of the actual text messages that uh, the killer was sending and receiving from other people that he was out online with. And I'll just read you some of the text from this one text message. Uh, it starts out, uh, I'm going to tell you, hold on. I'm waiting for this uh, bitch. Again, I was talking about his grandmother. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to do something to her. And the person responds, oh, my God. Uh, then he says, she's on the phone with AT&T about my cell phone. So he was fighting with his grandmother about his cell phone and the cell phone bill. She wanted to take it away from him, um, trying to, to put some discipline on this kid because the kid, his family was problematic and he was problematic. Um, and then he, he says, he continues on, he goes, boy, it's really annoying. Uh, and the person says, what? That's answering him. And he says, I just shot my grandma in her head. I'm going to go shoot up an elementary school, right? The person responds to him then and says, I just saw the news. So some time had expired from the time that he had shot his grandmother uh, till the time that this person saw on the news that there was a school shooting and this kid was responsible for it. So he's telling someone. Um, what, I, what I tell everybody, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, these people don't just wake up on a Tuesday morning and decide to kill coworkers or, or kill strangers or go down and kill their classmates. These things are a buildup. They're a buildup over time. They say things, do things. They change their dress. They change how they, uh, how they present themselves to the world. Um, so we can look for lots and lots of signs of pre-attack behaviors is what they're called. So let's follow the timeline. He did the shooting uh, at, to the, at, the, at the Samarians, Sam, Good Samaritans, and he heads towards the school. They call the police at 1128 and the police are starting to arrive. So the gunman, the killer, he arrived at the school. He threw his backpack over the perimeter fence and he hopped over a five foot tall perimeter fence and he starts walking towards the school building. So it's good that they had a, a fence. Do you have a fence? See, so his five-foot fence didn't really stop this kid. He was healthy, athletic kid, threw his bag over, and he went right over. Maybe a 10-foot fence might have slowed him down. So if you have perimeter fencing, uh, you might want to consider larger, higher perimeter fence. Imagine that. Fences and walls work, right? Crazy. 
Well, while they're out there, there's kids and teachers out on the fields, right, at the school. We go there, they're having a recess, they're having gym, whatever. And a coach from the school sees a person hop the fence. The person's got a gun, and they start shooting. So she starts running with her class towards the school, calling on her school security radio for a lockdown at the building. So this this teacher, this coach, did the right thing. First of all, do you have radios for your people, right? Do you have communication devices for your people so that they can call? So we talk a lot here about an article I wrote called The Three Pillars of Survival. And what the three pillars of survival are, are the are, it's a way to put all of this stuff into perspective. There's so many things about safety and security that if we look and we, we cover everything we can in the three pillars, uh, then you go a long way for being secure. So the first pillar is preparation. That's mental preparation, like we talked about. That is uh, preparing your staff, your students, your coworkers, everybody, your administrators, on what to do if there's violence or a threat of violence. That uh, preparation also includes getting the right equipment. Do you have the right cameras? Do you have the right size fencing? Um, do you have uh, visitor management systems? Do you have man traps in your building so that people get buzzed in, they have further screened, and then you finally let them into the facility when you think they're safe? All right. So this information here comes from page 41 of the Texas report. So a coach from the school saw the person hop the fence with a gun. She runs towards, uh, runs with her class towards the school calling for a lockdown. Um, but she did not hear on the radio an immediate response that, hey, the school's going into lockdown. Now, as the police response begins, the arriving officer saw a person uh, in dark colored clothes and thought it was the killer, right? The officer asked a supervisor for permission to shoot the person. No response was received. So here's what you have. You have this call of a car accident. Two uh, people go out to see if they can help. And this person who crashed the truck, the killer, he shoots at them. They tell the police this. When they get there, they say, hey, hey, he's going towards the school. So now the cops are thinking you got a shooter running towards the school. So it would make kind of common sense that a responding officer sees the shooter who's already fired at people, right? Not something he hasn't done something. He's actually shot at human beings, and now he's going towards a school. You should probably eliminate that threat. And one of the ways you do that is arrest them, contain them, or use apply deadly force to stop them. So that would be shooting them, right, to stop them from running to the school and hurting people. So this officer sees him and asks the supervisor, "Should I? can I shoot this person? Well, there was no response. The sergeant uh, did not respond to the officer, and that was a good thing. Because later in the investigation, they determined that the person that they saw, that the officer saw in dark clothes, was a coach from the school who was running towards the school trying to get the kids in off the field just because, you know, it was just a misinterpretation of who the person was. The fog of war, right? That's why the reports when we get initially are usually wrong. People said, oh, it was the killer and the cops could have got him. They didn't get him. It turned out it was a school person and they would have shot an innocent person. So that kind of worked out well. The Uvalde school's chief um, heard the call of shots fired at the Robb Elementary School over his radio. And he went there in his police vehicle, right? He jumps in his cop car um, and he goes from the high school. Now he's going to Robb Elementary School. The police department was based in the high school. That was where their uh, headquarters was. Upon the arrival, when the chief shows up at the Robb Elementary School, he had two radios. They carry two radios. One is a school-based radio for their police department. Another was a radio that contacted all the local police departments around them. So he has two radios. Now you got to figure he's probably nervous. 
he's in charge of this incident and he's he's going to an active shooter incident. Well, when he gets out of his vehicle, he started fumbling with the radios and instead of uh, taking them with him, he dropped them at the fence line as he was heading towards the school. And you'll find that on page 44 of the, uh, of the Texas report. All right, so, so we have a lot of information coming to us here uh, right off the bat. We see that there's, there's things going on that we need to look at. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a little break here. And when I come back, we'll continue with more of what happened at UMass. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the povidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. Now the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. Now we invite you, friends, to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill, it's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're in the middle of this uh, explanation based on the Texas House of Representatives report of what happened at the Uvalde School. I think there's important lessons to be learned for everybody, no matter what facility you're in. It doesn't have to be a school. Uh, basically, when I spoke at the... Uh, the as-is or ACES, however you want to pronounce it, uh, event the other night. What I said was, when we're dealing with active shooter response, basically you have um, a building. doesn't matter the kind of building it is. It's a building, and it has different missions. Some are churches, some are retail stores, some are businesses, some are schools, some are warehouses. You have a building where their people are, and it gets attacked. 
by an active shooter, someone who has some reason in their own head to attack the people in there. You have internal threats, which are the people we allow in the buildings, and the external threats, people are trying to get into the building to hurt us. Right? So that's what's important about this. So we can use Uvalde as a backdrop. What I want to say first, because I forgot the last episode, was to tell you about how much I like the Healthy Cell products. Okay, Healthy Cell makes uh, Immune Boost, and I've been taking it now for quite a while. I tell you about it on these shows because I want you to know it's, it really is an excellent health uh, addition to my routine and to Mrs. Uh, Pangaro, Mrs. Kathy. She takes it as well, and... I, I have not had this long of a string of time in my life where I haven't had sinus infections and uh, where I get all bronchitis all the time. In the last, I don't know, six months, seven months, eight months that I've been taking, I haven't had them. And I have them usually all the time, all through the winter. I didn't have anything. Um, and I can only attribute it to um, the healthy cell products, right? Healthy cell products. I'm convinced that it's really helping me to be healthier. And I'm suggesting if you're looking for something to help you, give it a try. I like the immune boost, but they also make a focus factor to help you think more clearly. And then they, uh, they make something for sleep if you have problems sleeping. So I mentioned that because uh, I think it's important to, to get some information because we're all looking for something, right? I think it really help, can help you. All right, so let's, let's jump back to where we were here now. Um, in our Uvalde, the response begins. We, t- we, we left it off when the chief was arriving uh, at the location and he fumbled with his radios and he dropped them at the fence and now he's going to go in. All right, so the Rob School principal heard the call for the radio lockdown and started to use, they have an electronic notification system there where you push a button and it, uh, it, it's Wi-Fi based uh, and it sends out a signal to the police and locks the building, puts out a message that says lockdown, lockdown, right? Tells everybody to lock down. Um, she thought she was having trouble with it because she had some Wi-Fi trouble. Now, I find this all the time in every school. I ask, hey, how's your cell service here? Uh, it's not so good inside the building. How's your Wi-Fi? Uh, it's not that good inside the building. Um, so how's your Wi-Fi in your business, your church? How's your cell service? Can you actually communicate? Remember, the three pillars of survival. We talked about the first one, preparation. The second one is communication. How do you let everybody know in your facility that there's danger, that there's a problem? How do you let everybody know in the school, the warehouse, the business office, the, whatever you are, that, hey, there's danger here? Right? That's the communication component. So using something like an electronic notification system can be very helpful. You hit a button. You activate a, a, an app. There's an outstanding one that I have found. It's called 911 Inform. And normally I don't mention products by name. But I am so impressed with this product. And no, Lieutenant Joe has nothing to do with it. I have no, no interest in the company other than I search for these things all the time. It's an amazing piece of equipment. It's called 911 Inform is the company. And they have a, a system that overlays uh, maps on your school, on your facility, on your workplace. And, and it, it opens up channels to the police immediately. The police can unlock and lock doors in your facility. It's amazing. So if you're looking for something, I would say take a look at that. But anyway, in this instance, the principal um, thought she was having trouble because she, she knew she had some bad Wi-Fi. Well, actually, the signal did get out. Uh, the program that they had there, it actually did work. Um, but not everyone got it because their Wi-Fi was bad, right? Apparently, she did not attempt to use the intercom 
to call the lockdown. She used the system that they had, the electronic notification. Instead, she called the chief of police from the Uvalde schools, and he told her, shut it down, shut it down, you know, apparently lock it down. This comes from page 44 of the Texas report. The principal told a custodian to check that all the doors in the school were locked, right? Very important to make sure your doors are locked. So we first heard that there was a report um, that the teachers had chocked a door open. Now, this is a common problem in any of our facilities, uh, especially in the spring and, uh, and the uh, summertime, right? People get warm, they get hot, they chock open doors to let air in, right? Schools do it too in early September when it gets warm. Uh, it's still warm, so people chock doors open to get air in there. So th the answer here is get better ventilation, get fans or get air conditioning, right? Because people chock doors all the time. That's one of the number one things I hear from security departments that they're concerned about is people are chocking doors and windows open, which allows people into your facility, right? So we heard in Uvalde initially that this guy um, came through a chocked open door. Well, what we find out later on is that there was a chalk door and another teacher told the teacher with the chalk door, hey, don't do that, close that door, right? Because they, they had apparently a very good sense of um, security culture in the school. They actually did. And one teacher told another, don't chalk the door. Unfortunately, what we found out down the road in the investigation is that while he didn't come through the chalked open door from the classroom, there were three open doors in the school, unlocked doors in the school. So are your business exterior doors locked? Do you limit where people come in? They come in, one door is where everybody should come in and you monitor that door with cameras or security personnel so you know who's coming in your facility. So there's three unlocked doors in the Uvalde school and the killer came through one of them. When I go out and uh, do my Lieutenant Joe's coffee walk in the morning, I go around, I look for open doors, and you find them. Uh, just yesterday, I was doing a threat assessment on a new district, and I went around and I found four doors that were unlocked in the morning, and I managed to get in the school. This is not uncommon. Uh, in businesses, I do the same thing. My business is locked up tight, and I end up walking through a warehouse door or through a delivery door or someplace or right through another door that's not locked. Are your doors locked? See, these are the lessons learned. We have to make sure we're doing that. All right, so the school response. So the teachers in the West Wing of the Uvalde School began their lockdown procedures because some of them did hear the electronic notification system. They did get it. Some of them got the message. They were getting ready. There were some teachers getting ready to go for recess, and they heard screaming and the sounds of gunfire. And they turned around and retreated into lockdown status in their classrooms. At 11.32 a.m., now remember, it started 11.28 for the first call about the shots fired in the car truck crash. Now he makes his way to the school within a couple of minutes, uh, and at 11.32 a.m., an electronic notification to lockdown was received by staff, so it worked very, very quickly. Um, so you, what do you have to notify people? Communication, right? So our three pillars are, are preparation, number two is communication, and number three is gonna be notification. How do you call the good guy and good girl guns to come and help you, the police? How do you call for police help to show up and help you when you have an active shooter, right? So what we found, like I said, was that three doors were unlocked. Uh, the, the initial reports that a teacher chalked the door, and that's how it again was not correct. And we also get, the, we get reports like that. All right, so once the killer gets inside the school, he shows he went towards the West Wing at 11.33 a.m. So one minute after the lockdown 
was notified. Because uh, remember, the teacher's running across the field on the radio, telling them to lock down. The principal hit the buttons and did the right thing. But he got into school anyway. He went into rooms 111 or 112. They, they can't still be certain because the cameras didn't cover everything. Uh, evidence is available that the teacher in room 112 locked her door effectively. This is what we're told. Right? And this comes from page 46 and 47 of the Texas report. It is believed the killer entered room 111, which most likely had a damaged lock and could not be secured, which was known to the administration and the staff. The teacher in room 111 did not recall hearing a lockdown call, but saw other people locking down. So here we have a couple of lessons. Number one, the communications, right? The communications aspect. Um, the system worked, but it didn't work completely because the Wi-Fi was bad, not because the program was bad, the program was good. So they had bad Wi-Fi. This school had a door lock on one of the classrooms that was reported and known to the staff to be uh, not functioning correctly. I find that in every threat assessment I do. I ask the custodians, maintenance people, hey, what doors have you complained about? Oh, door 37. We've been telling them about for two months. They just won't buy a new door. They won't pay for the lock. Here's your lesson learned. Do a regular maintenance routine and check of your doors and locks all the time to make sure they're always functioning and if they're not fix them immediately all right so we have this here uh, teacher in room 11 doesn't recall hearing the lockdown and the door was probably broken anyway the investigators uh, believe that once entering 111 the killer fired over a hundred rounds in rooms 111 and the connected room 112 killing lots and lots of innocent children and people at 11.37 a.m., now here's another thing we heard the cops didn't get there. At 11.37 a.m., five minutes after this alarm goes out, the lockdown alarm, officers arrived to the school, heard gunshots. They proceeded towards room 111 and 112 where the gunshots were. That's what cops are trained to do, go to the sound of the gunshots. But when they got there, it was now quiet. There was no crying or screaming or things you would think you would hear uh, if somebody was holding people hostage or shooting at people, and it was really quiet. As the officers approached from two different sides, the killer in the classroom shot at them through the doors and uh, through the walls. A couple of officers had minor industries, injuries and they retreated back away from the door. So the police were at the door five minutes after the alarm uh, initially went out that there was a problem in the school. Five minutes. That's, uh, you know, most of these events last between two minutes and 15 minutes. That's how long you have to secure yourself. Uh, until the later breach of room 111, no other attempts were made to get in. This is where the controversy comes in. This is where people are upset with the police. At 1137, they were at the door where the killer was. We know that kids inside the classroom were still making phone calls, but that information never got to the chief. Uh, for whatever reason, the dispatcher got it, maybe tried to call the chief, but the chief didn't have his radios, right? So for the law enforcement, you have to have this equipment with you at all times. Right, at 12.21 p.m., the chief was trying to communicate with the killer. Four more shots were fired in classroom 111, so he's still in there doing his thing. Uh, as the chief and some officers were discussing getting keys and rifles and other equipment, uh, at 12.15, a group of officers from the uh, Border Patrol breached room 111 and killed the attacker. One hour and 57 minutes passed from the time the incident began until the shooter was killed. An hour and 57 minutes. Now, we know that the door was unlocked. They were there at 11.37. They didn't have the proper equipment. So our lesson for our law enforcement here is you can't have to go looking 
for uh, shields and for rifles and all that stuff should be in every cop's car. You should have that available at all times when you're out on the road. That's the lesson we learned here. All right. So we want to make sure uh, that our patrol vehicles are set up so that they can do the right thing. When the cops get there, they put on their vests, they grab their rifles, their helmets, and in they go. Is that expensive? Yes, it's expensive. But when you need it, you need it. And in this instance, if they had that, they might have been more confident going in. They might have breached the door. I'm not going to critique any further than that because the final report will come out. But I can tell you just from the information that this is, um, I train law enforcement officers to respond to the sound of gunfire and they have to go in. Now, does that mean they run into blazing gunfire? No, they could have been more strategic, more tactical. They could have done some other things. There's lots of training that they should have had here. The chief, I know he came out and said, well, I didn't think I was in charge. And I find that to be an absurd statement. I, I believe he's already been fired from his job, which I think was probably appropriate. Because, of course, he's the chief of the school police department, and there's an active shooter in the school. Of course he's in charge, right? Of course he was in charge. He was the one making the calls. Everybody else showing up, the Border Patrol, the surrounding communities, police departments, they would all respond and, and assist the chief, right? They wouldn't take over the scene, right? So he obviously was in charge. And all these people were killed in there. It was a terrible, terrible situation. There's lessons learned for our law enforcement and for our schools as far as how we do things. The news report said the on-scene commander believed at that time that the situation had, tra had transitioned from an active shooter to a barricaded subject. All right, so Steve McGraw, who was the director of the Texas Department of Public Safety, said that at a press conference. All right, um, can that really happen? Well, yes. And I think I've explained this before, but I'll, I'll touch on it here because we're in the middle of the, the incident. An active shooter is someone who's actively trying to kill people. Once they stop actively trying to kill people and they take people hostages and they lock a door, now they're a barricaded subject. The police are not there to execute people, right? As strange as you would think, of course, the guy already killed people, go in and kill him. Well, then wouldn't we kill all murderers once we catch them? No, we don't. We arrest them unless they're actively resisting and trying to kill the police or they keep trying to kill other people like an active shooter. Then you apply deadly force. If they surrender, you arrest them. You take them into custody. Police are not executioners. So is it possible that in this confusion, remember, there was no crying, no screaming, nothing that they thought they anticipated they would get when they arrived at the scene where the shooter was. Um, is that a training event? Yes, I think there's something there to be learned that just because uh, it's quiet doesn't mean that people aren't in there still alive. And we know there were because there were kids calling. There was a teacher in there who was calling her husband who was one of the police officers in the hallway. I can't imagine the pain that that officer suffered listening to his wife saying she'd been shot and then he can't go forward. Now, why can't he go forward? Could he have broken ranks and ran for that door? Of course he could. But the police are are based on on leadership you know uh, the ranks make the decisions and if the chief is telling you not to go i don't know maybe i would have went but you would probably lose your job because the chief told you not to go and you went right um in this particular case i can't say that if that officer broke ranks or, or did what the, the border patrol people did who said we're going anyway um 
that they would have suffered because the Chiefs' decisions were incorrect. And that's what the final report's going to tell us. These are just my, my conjectures based on all of this, right? Would I have done and broken for the door if my wife's on the phone saying that the killer's in there still? I think I probably would have. And if I would have gotten fired, I got fired. And I'm not saying that officer did the wrong thing because he is a victim here just like all the other people there. He lost his wife in this incident. Um, and who knows what was going on that prevented him from doing it. I don't know. But uh, I do feel great, great um, sympathy for that officer. So the chief thought that this had transitioned, and that's why he said, let's go get equipment, because now it's barricaded. I guess he assumed everybody in there was dead and there was no victims to save. I, we're not really sure. We're going to have to get him in front of a grand jury and find out. So can an active shooter become a barricaded subject? Yes, yes, they can. And the police have to follow rules, right? The police just don't go in wailing gunfire because they feel like it. Um, if they went in the room and the guy lifted the gun up and it was threatening, then they could apply deadly force just like they can out in the street. If I stop you and you got a weapon and you raise it up to a police officer, the officer has a right to defend themselves with deadly force when faced with potential death or serious injury. So we want to keep that in mind, okay? Um, what exactly are the police trained to do in these incidents? What, the, what, are they, what do we train our cops to do? That's an important thing for everybody to know so they can understand how these things are going to go. So what we teach modern police officers um, is that when they, they get a call of an active shooter, they are initially, after Columbine, we said four officers should get together and then go. And then we said, wait a minute, that's not fast enough. Um, maybe, the, maybe the first couple of officers should go. Well, after Sandy Hook, we realized that time is of the essence, and the first good guy or good girl gun on scene has got to go after the shooter. You go in, you proceed to the sound of the gunfire, and then you confront the shooter, and you do one of three things. If the shooter sees you and puts the gun down and surrenders, you arrest them, right? As much as us in the public would say, shoot him, kill him, because they're a killer, that's not what police do. So if the person sees the officers, drops the gun, surrenders, you arrest them. If the killer runs into a room and locks themselves in, and they're in there not threatening anyone, they're by themselves and they're, uh, they're barricaded in, all right, you contain them. And now you get a SWAT team, you talk them out, you try and do what you can. If they point the weapon at you or they continue shooting, the third option is to apply deadly force. Now, that might be your first option. You get there and they're shooting. Uh, you can't let them just keep shooting. The officers may have to apply deadly force immediately, which is appropriate. But this has evolved over time. So when the officers go in, they do not stop at victims. If they find you laying on the floor bleeding, they're going to jump over you and continue to the sounds of the gunfire because the important thing is to stop the shooter before they kill any more people. The second wave of officers that come in uh, might come in and help the victims uh, if they have enough officers on scene. What I see now is that lots of places are starting to train their EMTs, their, their uh, emergency medical technician people, to operate in what we call the hot zone, where the shooting is going on. We put vests on them, they go in with officers, they peel off when they find victims and they take care of them. That is the new wave and I think that's right. We teach that and train that in my company uh, and I think it's the right thing to do because it speeds up the process, all right? Um, how do you get into the school? How do you get into your business? How would they get into your warehouse if the doors were closed and there's a shooter in there? Well, we train the officers to make uh, entry by any way possible. If they have to smash a police car through a door, they should do that so they can get in and get to the shooter. So you want to ask yourself, do my local police have keys or swipe cards or something to get into my facility 
if they needed to get in here quickly. You can trust the cops with a key to your building or a fob to your building, right? So you want to think about that. You might want to provide that to them. Maybe you get like one of those uh, those boxes that they put outside your building for the fire department, right? They put them out there so when a the fire department arrives, they have a code, they open the box, now they have keys. We'll put a separate one there, painted blue for the police, right? So the police have keys or give them a key. So that's what we teach them about getting in the building, force your way in. Once inside, the individual, the initial officers are trained to go directly to that sound of gunfire. Right? That's what I said. We ignore everything else. Um, we notify anybody if we, if we see what looks like a bomb or some kind of an explosive because they're often involved in these scenes. People bring explosives. The Columbine kids had explosives. Um, other people have had explosives on scene when they went in to do their shooting. So if an officer sees that, they notify somebody else and they keep moving. They keep moving, right? They got to get to the shooter which is really the important thing. So when we heard about Uvalde, we know that they had an independent police department. It had a, um, six police officers, a chief, a detective, and four patrol officers. The problem they had was that they had nine schools in the district. So I see this all the time. I go to companies, I go there, and I say, oh, you have security. Oh, you have seven buildings in your, um, on your campus. Or at the school, we have you know nine buildings in our school district. We have three security officers, and they rotate. They rove around. Is that good? It's not really that good because you're hoping that they're at the right place at the right time. Um, so you really should have a couple of people at each building, right? So you have a, should have a couple of people at each building. So in the school district, they did not have enough officers to cover their schools. That's just the reality. They had nine schools and six cops. Um, and maybe that was budgetary constraint. That's a reality. You just don't always have money, right? Um, the officers carried two radios, one for the school district and one for the local police. It's reported that the radios had good reception, uh, the school radios, but the police radios had intermittent service, which means sometimes the signal came and sometimes it didn't. No officer was specifically assigned to the Robb Elementary School. They rotated around. They stopped at the schools. They did a 10, 15 to 45 minute walkthrough. Um, they had no rifles or breaching tools immediately available. All right, so this is, uh, this is important. This is from page 54 of the Texas report. Uh, one of the things the chief of police for the school district was reported saying is that, you know, what are you doing? He says, he's got an AR and we have pistols, which means they were outgunned. So that's why police departments should have um, M4s, AR-15s, some kind of rifle in every police car that officers have immediate access to with their vests and helmets and all the other stuff they might need, especially in a rural area, right? Where you can't go back to headquarters or get stuff or you have to wait 20 minutes for somebody to bring you stuff. It should be in your patrol cars. We have to learn that lesson that our, our police have to be fully equipped and ready to go at all times. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, well, what did the school do? What did, did they do anything really good? Actually, they, they did a lot. All right. They had a school human threat assessment team, which is great. Uh, this kid that attacked them was a former student, not a current student. So maybe he was his threat was not picked up by them. They didn't know about the social media threats. They had perimeter fencing, but we see that five feet was not tall enough. So if you have perimeter fencing around your business, your church, your school, it should be higher. That's the lesson learned. Do you, they had a locked classroom door policy, which was good. Every classroom door should be locked and closed, which saves a lot of time for the teachers. They don't have to go in the hallway and try and lock a door because you're not going to do it when there's a shooting going on. They had social media monitoring, which is known as a geofence, 
which you can buy a service that can geofence your school, your business, your town, whatever. And when certain keywords are said within that geofence, it alerts somebody. So somebody says school shooting, shoot up an elementary school, shoot up a business, go kill my boss. Those words pop up and uh, people are notified, police, business officials, whoever, whoever has the rights to the geofencing. So that's an important thing. An electronic notification system. Right, where a teacher or anybody in the district can push a button and it alert, alerts the police and everybody else in the building uh, that, hey, there's danger, we need to lock down, shelter in place, we need to evacuate, whatever. There's lots of, I talked about um, 911 Inform, I'm telling you. Look it up, 911 Inform, love it. Great program, great people. I've met them, I've spoken to them because I vet these things out so that when my clients ask me, what's a good notification program? I could tell them one and I, I think this one's amazing. You really should look at it. And then their own police department. Uh, they had their own police department, right? So they did do a lot of things correct in the school district. Unfortunately, it didn't work out because uh, I know they trained there. They did active shooter events. But they did they practice realistically? I don't know. So when you train, you have to practice realistically. This is the preparation part, right? So our three pillars. Preparation, which is mental, physical, and equipment preparation. Then we have communication. How do we call and tell everybody in the facility there's danger? And then three, how do we notify, notify the uh, law enforcement to come and help us, right? So these things are all built into this. So equipment for schools and police. Cameras with a connection to your police department. The police should be able to turn on the cameras in your facility and look in there during an emergency. Now, I know in a lot of schools, they're concerned. Oh, we don't want to look at our kids because then they're just looking for reasons to come lock up our kids. Well, that's not true. The police aren't going to do that. They have many other things to do. But in an emergency, in your business, your school, your church, wherever, where you got cameras, they can push a button. Now they can see what's going on inside your facility. It helps direct the responding officers. All right? Can we see signs before? And this is my last point today. Yes, we can. People make threats, social media threats. They start to change their clothing, right? They start to dress in more military fashion in many cases because they're about to attack someone. It's building up on them, whatever it is that's bothering them or causing them to move forward towards violence. And many of them will start to dress in the appropriate clothing that they see for an attack. So you'll see BDUs, battle dress, uniform pants, military style bandoliers, you'll see caps, uh, boots and gloves and stuff. So when we see these things, we have to notice that, hey, this is a problem. Somebody is starting to militarize themselves. We have to move forward. All right, listen, today was a different kind of episode. I wanted to get this information out to you. Uh, I have more to offer later on in another episode. But for today, I hope this helps everybody. Some lessons learned. Uh, look at your facilities and see what you can do to make them safer. And remember, be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. This is Lieutenant Joe for Chasing Justice saying, say, hey, see you down the road.